You're listening to Global Conversations. Um, so coming back to um, the Canadian context, I'm just curious, um, where do you think the best place is to begin for climate change in Canada? Um, we talked yesterday with Heather Miller about um, transportation. Uh, we talked about energy. We talked about a bunch of different things, but I'm kind of curious from your perspective. Um, in the Canadian context, where do you think it's best for us to begin? Where, where, where the most effective change can, can start? Yeah, I mean, I would certainly be interested in what environmental economists and others would, yeah. would say about specific policies. Uh, as far as I can tell, the best of my ability watching and sort of paying attention to the debate is the carbon tax is actually the best place to begin. Um, you have to also have a mind on bringing the United States around. There's, given that we are, in effect, a common economic market, there's going to have to be a common policy environment with respect to climate as well. Otherwise, you're incurring costs for no benefit, which is in nobody's interest and certainly not in the planet's interest in any way. So uh, I think that the, the U.S. angle, not with this administration, but with a next administration, is going to have to be a priority number one for the government. But in the meantime, and on the assumption that there will be a different sort of administration in the U.S. in the not-too-distant future, it seems to me that the best compromise position, better than any of the alternatives that I've seen, and this is, again, from reading what economists and others have said, it is a carbon tax. You impose a price to ensure that negative externalities on the production of carbon uh, aren't sort of borne uh, by other people who uh, ultimately end up incurring a lot of the cost and, and in exchange for none of the benefit. You impose a cost that incentivizes companies to, to reduce their emissions and lets them find the most ingenious ways to do that, rewards the companies that are successful uh, and punishes the companies that aren't. And so essentially you unleash the free market on the biggest policy challenge that governments face. And I think that is the compromise solution or the best compromise solution rather than having the government pick winners and losers in industries, rather than having the government try to do things like shut industries down en masse. Uh, I think if you if you tax it and let the market uh, free on it, that's probably our, our best course of action in the short term. So there's there's uh, certainly a lot of capital for innovation. I certainly do think that the capacity for innovation has to be there, and companies have to be in the habit of innovating. And if they're not, it can be very difficult, obviously, to adjust to any change. Uh, and I don't know the structure of these companies well enough to know the degree to which the innovation impetus would be um, uh, you know, sort of Canada-focused versus United States-focused. I mean, I have no doubt whatsoever that these companies, and a lot of them have very close American ties, uh, would be able to innovate to respond to policy challenges that afflicted the United States, for example. So I guess to, to, to distill the, the, the answer to, to a few lines, I would say something like this. If the United States is in a position where the companies don't need to innovate in any particular way, I wouldn't expect them to invest that much money to mm -hmm. innovate in order to satisfy some demand of the Canadian market. They might simply just get out of the Canadian market altogether yeah. and move shop down into the United States. But if there's a common policy environment or even a more common policy environment between Canada and the U.S., I have no doubt at all that these companies would, um, would have the incentive and the capacity to innovate. I mean, I think just even the development of fracking, the fact that We've been at uh, sort of the limits of what we consider to be available oil reserves for, for quite some time, and just the technology improves, the yeah. ability to harvest new oil in new ways. So it's a company and an industry that's shown itself more than capable of responding to market pressures and innovating historically, and I have no doubt they can do that. I just don't know that they would have enough incentive to do it just to satisfy the demands of the Canadian government, mm -hmm. especially if they can extract that oil more cheaply, mm -hmm. not that far away, just south of the border. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, actually, I have one question that I've had for a while, and I think you were the one who told me about it. Oh. The... <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, and it was the... It was the whole idea that the that the election was the election about nothing, and I was just curious about your opinion on that. Like, what what does that mean? And do you think it has any link to climate change? Do you think it's like just part of the platforms in general, the leaders in general? Yeah, it certainly was not a climate change election. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd heard it described that way. Uh, it really, it really, there's no evidence for that as either, far as yeah. I can tell. I mean, Somebody was, at the panel actually said that, didn't Yeah, they? I mean, it was an issue, but it wasn't, there's no evidence that it was a voting issue. I mean, Andrew Scheer was the plurality winner here and is the one with the with the climate agenda that is out of step with the sort of majority yeah. position, at least in polls, that you see uh, among Canadians as a whole. You know, what was the election about? I really, I mean, it's, it's a, it was a great question. It certainly was nothing like, say, the free trade election. And even that, I think, in hindsight, we've tended to blow up the degree to which that was about free trade rather than many other things. Yeah. Uh, this election, it seemed to me, and it's not inconsistent with recent elections, is, was about primarily the personalities of the leaders, in my yeah, view, definitely. which is just, it's unfortunate. And obviously, from a political science perspective, that's not something you really want to see, but it's the reality. And there's no point in complaining about the fact that the Earth rotates around the sun, so or the <laughs> orbits the sun. So I think it's, uh, you know, it's sort of in that, in that domain. Uh, a few notable things about the election. I, I do think that the I think the blackface scandal was significant for all kinds of reasons. And as I think I've mentioned in many contexts, I think it revealed something about the prime minister that caught a lot of people off guard. And it wasn't simply that he had done things in the past that people would consider to be irresponsible. Uh, I think two things about it. Number one, I don't really think that the public got the worst of the blackface scandal. I think there was actually images that were far worse than the ones that were that were shown. That's the first point I would make. And the second point, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a maybe an old, an old view. But um, when he was asked if there were any more recent uh, incidents of blackface, and he refused to deny even remembering any more recent uh, incidences of blackface, suggests to me that there are, first of all, more recent incidences than the ones that we knew about. Um, but also, it becomes very difficult to sort of forgive somebody when they're not willing to admit fully to the extent of what actually happened. So I think it was a character election in that respect for the prime minister. And then as far as Andrew Scheer goes, I will be extremely surprised if he is still the leader of the Conservative Party in a year. Uh, I don't think the people in the party want to keep him, and I suspect that there are going to be people yeah, who are successfully able to remove him. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's going to be very hard for him to hang on. Uh, I think his referring to the, the prime minister as a phony and a fraud in the in the debate. I think that is also a turning point in Canadian politics. There's been nothing like that in yeah. in, in, in in certainly in my um, time horizon of, of Canadian politics. So that is an escalation. Uh, I can remember in I think it was the 1997 election. It was a controversy that a conservative ad implied that Jean Chrétien was lying. Yeah. This was a controversy. Were we importing American-style attack politics into Canada yeah. was a big discussion. And so to see uh, one leader call another a phony and a fraud in a debate, I think, is a, is definitely a downturn for the level of civility in politics and for politics in general. So I, I look at this as more of a, a, of a clash of, of leader personalities. And I certainly would hope, and everyone blames the media for everything, but I would blame the media, and I would certainly hope that they focus on other things in the future. The leader centrism of politics, it seems to me, does no good for anybody. Yeah. So it wasn't an issue election, despite the fact that there were obviously a lot of issues that were important. Yeah, I would agree. It took, a, it took away a lot of attention, um, a lot of needed attention, I think, to a lot of important issues that um, just 
didn't get the time of day on on media, sorry, in the media, in newspapers, what you hear about the headlines, I think I would agree. It was very much uh, a leadership-centered um, election, and uh, I just thought it was an interesting headline and wanted to ask you about it. Um, I, I hate to always bring it back to social media because people blame it for everything, but like I, I feel like that that it's a largely a consequence of that. Like, What do you think about the effect of social... I know this is such a broad topic and like completely out of scope what we're talking about but like we talked about i think in the panel a little bit actually no it wasn't the panel it was when i attended the cbc viewing party um can't remember his name he's he's been covering elections for like the last 40 years big cbc broadcaster Mansbridge. that's it yeah they asked him they asked him uh what are the three things about this election that are completely different from any that there have been before uh, number one, he said, was social media, um, even compared to the last election. And I would agree, like, it's it's blown up, like, since 2015. And we've had Facebook and stuff since 2005, but, like, it's just not the same as what it is now. Uh, and I feel like the focus on leadership personality, that's a, that's a consequence of social media somehow. I'm just not a, exactly sure why that's the case. There's some interesting research that's sort of very preliminary, but if you look at the messages that parties send out, I mean, one of the nice things about social media from a social science perspective is that it just gives us such great access to data. I mean, we have just unrivaled amounts of data that can be analyzed. And so one, um, and I have students actually in my fourth year course on political disagreement who are looking at exactly these kinds of uh, these kinds of questions. So if you look at messages that parties put out, you can then compare how often they were shared on Facebook or how often they were retweeted, for example. And so you might see a, an article, let's say the liberals put out a, an image and it's about something nice that Justin Trudeau has done and, and so on. And you can see how often it's been shared. Yeah. And then you see one that the liberals put out and it's about how evil you know Andrew Scheer is or what his hidden agenda is or something like that. And you can see how often it's been shared. Mm-hmm. And what the evidence that some of the students found suggests is that people share these negative attack ads that we all say we hate much more than they share the positive boring ads about policy that we all seem to say that we want. So if anything, it seems to me that social media is not itself a problem. I think what it has done, though, is expose psychological vulnerabilities that people have that make life and democracy more difficult. Things, for example, like wanting to always believe that your side is right and the other side is wrong, that everybody on your side is good, everybody on the other side is bad, that sort of groupish loyalism that we see a lot of. Exactly. All of those things, all of those things which are implications in any political environment have just been magnified by uh, by social media and so I, I think that is one of the big challenges that we that we face it's that social media has exposed us to our weaknesses in a way um, that didn't exist uh, to that degree I suppose mm-hmm. in in a kind of more traditional media age so I I mean I guess in a, in a short sense we are stuck with the situation we have and are going to have to find a way to live with it. I think it's probably a bit naive uh, to expect that our psyches are going to change, though who knows what social media will do. Maybe we will become more accustomed and more careful eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's still maybe a bit naive but less naive to hope that leaders might actually be held to a higher standard so that they don't exploit 
um, our propensity, for example, to believe misinformation when it's on our side. Yeah. So maybe that's the, the way forward. It's just a, um, maybe leadership is going to be our way out of this. I mean, again, it's hard for me to predict, but I, I do know that social media is not going to go away. Mm-hmm. Are you good to go for another 10 minutes? Uh, yeah, sure. I know I said we should stop, but we're almost at the hour point, so we might as well just split it into two episodes because yeah. we try to limit them to 30. Um, do you think that like leadership today is is not as effective as it used to be? Like, I when I look back at past leaders, even like I, I, I liked Harper as a leader, and I liked past Canadian leaders and and past American leaders as well. And like, I feel like today, like there's just a I I don't have any respect for any of them. And I don't know if it's if it's nostalgia that I, that I feel like leaders from the past are are just better than they were today or is is there some truth in that was there some i mean like you said yourself that they at least in canada they didn't tend to attack each other so much so my impression is not uh, that different from yours actually my impression is that leadership is weaker today at the federal level than it's been at any point in my political memory Um, there is nothing at the federal level like uh, jean chrétien for example i mean he uh, was a a uh, very experienced politician who understood the country reasonably well. I certainly was not loved around the country, and there was always these political differences that existed, but you know, he was very polished. And if you think of the people that he was up against, I mean, Preston Manning um, was, again, somebody who was sort of widely seen as a kind of a conservative intellectual. He had founded an important political movement. Um, Joe Clark was, I mean, Jean Charest, um uh, I guess Lucien Bouchard for a while, Gilles Duceppe for the Bloc Québécois. Um, um, so the 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 NDP and I should I should remember their names, but it's uh, <laughs> it's um, I remember the faces actually of the. Um, it's embarrassing that I can't remember the, the New Democratic. But these were, the NDP was very effective in the 90s. But certainly, you know, look at Jack Layton. I mean, he was obviously extremely effective yeah. as a leader. Yeah. Very loved. Yeah. Cool. And uh, and I'll just, you know, again, he wasn't initially. It took him a while, yeah. but he, uh, over time, experienced some some, um, uh, some regained popularity. But he also sort of developed quite a bit of, uh, um, uh, you know, just quite a bit of experience, I guess, over time. And then even if you think of the failed liberal leaders, so we say that Stéphane Dion, for example, wasn't a leader. That's true, but he, he may not have been a good leader, whatever whatever that means. Maybe he wasn't charismatic, which is something I've mm-hmm. always been sort of perplexed at why people want mm-hmm. in a leader. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was certainly thoughtful. He was intelligent. He was promoting a green shift before anybody else was talking about it or taking it seriously. And Harper, I think, finally, was yeah. a polished leader. Yeah. And I don't think there's anything – I mean, Justin Trudeau – was not tested in the liberal leadership race to become leader of the Liberal Party. That was a coronation. The, the fix was in mm-hmm. for him, and it didn't matter what substantive policy proposals any of his six or seven opponents um, proposed. Nothing mattered. It was just that he was the uh, the object that was going to win that election. Yeah. And he won on, on zero substance. And mm-hmm. that's, it's not clear to me that he won the last election on anything too substantive either, mm-hmm. other than that he was younger than Stephen Harper, yeah. that he connected with people in a way that Stephen Harper didn't, and that he wasn't Stephen Harper, basically. Yeah. So now we have a situation where it seems to me a lot of the political talent is actually at the provincial level. Yeah. Think of Jason Kenney, you can think of Legault and, and uh, uh, in Quebec, and I think it's going to be challenging for young, relatively weak, inexperienced leaders at the federal level to solve the huge, pressing national challenges the country faces with that much talent at the provincial level stacked up against them. It's actually crazy to me that like that Trudeau did so much better against Harper than he did against Scheer. Is that 
is that true? Uh, yeah, people wanted to get rid of people wanted to get rid of Harper. They yeah. were sick of him. Uh, they were sick of the Conservative Party. I would say that the. Again, it's a mystery for me, but the Mike Duffy scandal, I don't know if you remember this, the, no. the Senate scandal. So this is a, I'm dating myself. See, this is, this is an age. I mean, this is a, an example. So the every, last every day for the, the last year. So when was this? So this is in the last year of the Harper scandal. So oh, it's a bit of a long okay. story, but it was a senator that Stephen Harper appointed who lived in Ottawa, but he had a cottage in Prince Edward Island, and he'd asked to be appointed for Prince Edward Island, but Stephen Harper appointed him for, for, he'd asked to be appointed for Ontario, sorry, but Stephen Harper appointed him to be the senator for Prince Edward Island. Now, the Constitution says that in order to be a senator, you have to be primary resident of the province, or a resident of the province for which you are appointed, and you have to live there a certain amount, except if it's in Ottawa, um, for the sake of being in, in the Senate. So, what happened was the senator claimed Prince Edward Island as his primary residence, despite the fact that he actually lived in Ottawa most of the time. And so he, as a result of making that claim, which he thought he had to do in order to occupy the seat, he also then ended up getting an expense allowance for living away from his home in Ottawa. Oh, okay. When it came, you know, became public knowledge that he was getting this expense allowance, the government then demanded that he pay it back. He said he didn't have the money to do it, and so Stephen Harper's chief of staff, Nigel Wright, cut him a personal check for $97,000 and said, pay it back uh, with this money. So he cut a senator a check to pay back taxpayers, basically, for this spending allowance that he'd had. And that was a scandal that Harper had to deal with, thanks largely to Thomas Mulcair, actually, who was a fantastic leader of the opposition. Um, uh, every day in the House of Commons for a year. And I always thought that it was such a small potatoes thing. Well, what about the Trudeau scandals? But relative to the SNC-Lavalin scandal, there is absolutely no comparison. Yeah. I mean, the if Stephen Harper had fired two prominent female cabinet ministers, including the first ever Indigenous Minister of Justice, yeah. in order to, it seems, to push through a, a, uh, a, a cushy bargain for a... a uh, you know, conservative-friendly firm that had been involved in corruption, it would so far exceed the, this Mike Duffy scandal. Yeah. And yet that's one of the things that really hurt, that really hurt Harper. So, um, so anyway, the point of that is that I think, I think Stephen Harper certainly was up against a different kind of challenge than Justin Trudeau was even more recently. But I think Trudeau's days are not numbered. I think he, you know, he, he, it's not the, not the sense that he's no way he can get out of it. But I think his honeymoon era with the, yeah. uh, is, is, uh, has ended. And now he is going to be held to account for the things that he does in a way he hasn't been so far. And I think ultimately that may make him a better leader. And we'll see. This is going to be the term that really tests his mettle because I think everyone would agree uh, he didn't perform anywhere near to expectations in his last term with the majority government. Though they did get some good things done, they, they managed to negotiate an agreement with the United States. They did manage to get their universal child care credit increase, which is obviously important for a lot of families. So they did do things, but the mistakes and the unforced errors, it seems to me, outweighed those um, those achievements. Yeah, yeah, I think something that you, you mentioned quite a few times um, in the EGL panel was that this government needs to take things seriously and that you think that they have... or. That, that, or that they will, this election, or sorry, oh my gosh, my words, I'm so sorry, <laughs> or that they will take things seriously this time around. Um, and I think that that speaks to even the way he dealt with a lot of these issues in the last year, with his media team, or like when he was talking about the, the ethics report that came out and he said that he didn't agree with the final result from the ethics commission, I was like, dude, like, <laughs> <laughs> come on, you know? So I think 
you're absolutely right in saying that this time around they seem a little bit more grounded. Am I, am I, do you think I'm wrong in saying that? Or a little, maybe a little humbled by the fact that they did lose quite a bit? Yeah, I think it's uh, certainly they lost a lot. I think they are humbled by it. I also think that he is not on the bubble, but his situation within the party is much more precarious. Yeah. I think the sense that they won because of him has changed the sense that they lost a lot more than they needed to because of him. So he needs to be a little bit careful with how he manages his government. But he's certainly not the first. I mean, I think one of the big challenges that Paul Martin faced, and Paul Martin, again, very thoughtful decent person by any account. I mean, I don't think anyone would have said anything otherwise about him. Maybe Jean Chrétien would have when they were going through their, their <laughs> leadership's bad. But I think, you know, Paul Martin certainly was a very decent person. But he was in front of the cameras every single day when he was when he was leader. He was overexposed. People were sick of hearing about him. People want to live lives. They want to do their jobs, you know, hang out with their families and do other things. They do not want to see politicians in their face every single day. Uh, and I think one of the challenges for the liberals was that Justin Trudeau was overexposed and he was pretty popular. Uh, but that's no longer the case now. So what exactly is his role going to be in the government? If it's not out, uh, you know, uh, smiling and shaking hands and being literally the face of a of a party, uh, then there's going to be questions about what exactly his role is. And uh, um, certainly you think of somebody like Christian Freeland, who's extremely competent and is almost certainly going to do a better job than Justin Trudeau could do in the, in the task at hand for her, for basically, for lack of a better term, unifying the country. Um, uh, I think uh, you know, somebody like that is going to look increasingly appealing to liberal supporters if Trudeau continues um, uh, to make these unforced errors. So my hunch is he's going to be more careful. For him, my hope is he gets some advisors that don't have the same blind spots that he has so that he can get some advice and things that he might not already know. Uh, and if he can do all those things, then who knows, this he could really turn things around. And I wouldn't be surprised if the conservatives fall into disarray and they're um, in leadership debates and Shears trying to hang on and all the rest of it. I wouldn't be surprised if the liberals end up winning a majority of government again in the next election if they play their cards right. Yeah. I guess you could say he's going to have to put away the black face and put on his game face, huh? On that note, uh, thank you, Chris. Uh, uh, it was such thanks. a pleasure talking to yeah, you. Thank you so much episode. for coming on our episode today. Um, and I think we'll probably split it on into two. What's that? Two yeah, episodes? for sure. Okay. For sure. Uh, yeah, we'll get that sent to you uh, as soon as possible. I'll probably work on it this weekend. Great. Thank Perfect. you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Yeah.